0: Well, welcome everyone. Promise should get started here. Thank you. This is the dinner. I've got a list here of. Uh, i got a list here of people who were in the class last semester. What I'd like for you to do, if you would, is just if you're here, <laughs> check off your name, and if you're not. We have some new folks with us. Thanks for coming tonight. If you would, just write your name in if you're new, okay? All if you don't know... You don't know your name? No. <laughs> I can't oh, I'd say you don't know if you're here or not. See me after the last call. We'll assign you one. We'll, we'll assign you one. We'll, we'll assign you one. Yeah, right We've we'll 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 you you yeah. we got to see what's open first. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> you know, not, every, not every name is available in here. <laughs> We've got enough bills. We've got enough bills, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you very much. Uh, my name is Bill Combs, and we're looking at the Book of Acts. We, this, was actually, this is actually a two-semester kind of class, but the book easily divides <clears throat> into two sections. So we can study 13 through 28 without having to know a lot about 1 through 12. It's sort of self-sufficient unto itself, so it's not so necessary to be as familiar with 1 through 12 as it would be, say, In a book like Philippians, it's hard to start in chapter 3 if you don't know what happened in chapters 1 and 2. So we'll refer back to, and I'll give a little review here. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time together this evening. We pray you'll grant us understanding of the Word of God. Give us a great appreciation for your Word. And give us a spirit of obedience, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So if you have your notes there, we're looking at page 1. And I've just given an outline at the top of what we covered last semester, just so we could sort of review that for a few minutes, and then we will proceed through. Um, Let's see, get my clicker here. Um, We had, uh, in chapter 1, 1 through 241, we had an introduction And you remember there we had what we call the foundational elements of the Christian mission. You remember the coming of the Holy Spirit, uh, Christ's instructions to the apostles and so forth. Various foundational elements, the choosing of a new replacement for Judas. That was chapter 1, 1 through 241. And then the book divides into roughly two sections. The Christian mission to the Jewish world, which we covered last time. Now, of course, we got into Gentiles, but mainly to the Jewish world. And this semester, 1225, which is really the last verse in chapter 12, so really chapter 13 through 28 is the Christian mission to the Gentile world. Remember, Jesus said in Acts 1.8 that they, he gave a commission, the commission in Acts, that they would go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, which we've already seen, and to the uttermost, to the end of the various ends of the uttermost parts of the earth. So we've covered that part of it, and that's what this Jewish mission to the Christian world is about, 242 through 1224. We saw, first of all, A there. Well, let me put this up first. I mentioned last semester, remember that Acts is the bridge between the Gospels and the Epistles. So we wouldn't really understand Paul's Epistles if we didn't have the book of Acts, we wouldn't know who this Paul is, where he came from, uh, how he got saved, uh, what, his, what his commission was, and so on It would it'd be very difficult without the book of Acts. So it bridges the gap here between the two. So the Christian mission to the Jewish world, uh, to the uh, Jewish world, 243 through 1224, um, and that includes these elements here. Let me just review those for a second here. Uh, First of all, the the, uh, earliest days of the church at Jerusalem. Um, We saw uh, the day of Pentecost. We saw the persecution of the early church, you remember there? Uh, Various events around the early church. Then we saw B, critical events in the lives of three pivotal figures. Remember we talked about Stephen, and how Stephen was stoned to death and so forth uh, because he dared challenge some of the established ideas about Judaism and the relationship between Judaism and the Messiah. Remember, we said he was the first person who really who really suggested that Judaism is going to have to change some to incorporate the idea of Jesus the Messiah. Uh, Judaism is not going to continue on as it normally has. Uh, he got stoned for that. But remember we said, it's funny, the man who was there at the stoning, Paul, picks up that message. He's the man who takes the gospel to the Gentiles. And we saw Philip. He took the gospel to the Samaritans, remember? And then we saw the conversion of of Saul of Tarsus there in chapter 9. And then uh, the advances of the gospel in Palestine, Syria, 932 through 1234. That was the last thing we took. I thought we'd just say... A few more things about that. Uh, we saw the ministry of Peter in the maritime plain of Palestine, 932 through, uh, through 43. Remember, Peter uh, went from Jerusalem over to a place called Lydda in chapter 9. and Remember there, he heals this man, Aeneas. And then he goes over to Joppa and this woman named Tabitha has recently died, he raises her from the dead, and he's that Joppa there. And remember the the last verse there says he's staying with Simon the Tanner. And then Cornelius, the conversion of Cornelius is a key event here. Remember, Cornelius has this vision. Cornelius is a Gentile, but he's a God-fearer. Remember we said there were uh, different types of Jews. There was full people who were born Jewish, uh who their mother mother was a Jew Jews trace their uh, lineage through their mothers so even today in Israel if you're uh, if your mother is Jewish you are Jewish as far as the Jewish state is concerned they trace it through their mother the Americans trace it through their father uh, not their mother but the Jews through the mother and so so uh, If you're born a Jew, then you're a Jew by birth. You you could be a proselyte. You can convert to to Judaism. You could be a convert to Judaism. For males, this means circumcision, but there's a whole process. And then there were these people we'll see in the book of Acts we call God-fearers. That's how they're often translated. They're just Gentiles who believed in the God of Judaism, believed in the one God, the true God they appear to, but they didn't really observe Jewish customs that much. They didn't. They were just people who would go to the synagogue. They were allowed to go to the synagogue. We'll see a number of these. We've seen a number. And Cornelius was one of these. Cornelius was a Gentile. He has a vision, and in that vision, he's told to send to Joppa for men, you know, to come for Peter to bring bring the gospel to him. Peter goes up then to Caesarea, and uh, remember, there he gives the gospel. And Cornelius is converted. The last thing we saw in the book, in the first part of the book, there is the church at Antioch, the establishment of the church at Antioch. Uh, remember, it says that because of the, the uh, persecution that went along with Stephen, when Stephen was persecuted, uh, Jews fled, uh, Christians fled. Uh, Jewish Christians apparently fled Jerusalem. They went up to Tyre and Sidon. They went to Antioch. They went to Cyprus. It says they spoke the gospel mainly to Jewish people. And uh, then, then the next verse says others came from Cyrene, from North Africa. They came from Cyprus. They came to Antioch. This led to the establishment, to the start of a church in Antioch, remember, in Acts chapter 11. And so when the Jerusalem church hears about this, they send Barnabas, you remember, up to Antioch. To uh, find out what's going on and see what's going on and try to help them and so forth, and he decides he's going to go get the Apostle Paul. He's going to go get Paul. Remember, Saul had been converted in chapter nine, but he had left some years earlier—about eight to ten years earlier. He had left and gone back to Tarsus, and he's been there for about eight to ten years. And he gets the uh, Barnabas gets him, brings him back to Antioch in chapter 11 and it says you remember in chapter 11 um, then Barnabas verse 25 went to Tarsus to look for Saul, he found him brought him to Antioch, so for a whole year Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch well then um, <clears throat> Um, There is a mention here, a a problem of a famine. A severe famine is predicted by this prophet Agabus there at the end of chapter 11. And the people in Antioch say, we're going to help the people in Jerusalem and Judea. And they send Barnabas and Saul, you remember, down to Jerusalem. The end of chapter 11 there, during this time, some prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch and said, there's going to be this severe famine. And so the disciples, the brothers and sisters said we're going to, we're going to help these people living in Judea and so they sent Barnabas and Saul down there in chapter 11. Now we'll see that at the end of chapter 11 they come back but there's kind of a there there's a a there's a, a a scene here an interregnum sort of scene here that takes place between when Barnabas and Saul come to Jerusalem and when they come back to Antioch. Which we'll pick up in chapter 13 tonight. But um, there is this divine intervention on the behalf of the Jerusalem church 12, 1 through 23. We have this, the story is told to us about uh, Herod, about King Herod. And King Herod, we're told in chapter 12, arrests uh, Peter, James, and John. He had James, the brother of John, put to death. Uh, and then he proceeds to seize Peter. Remember, this Herod that we're talking about here is Herod Agrippa the I. If you remember that chart from last time, we'll see it again here. But there's King Herod the Great, who was during the time of Jesus. And then he had sons who ruled over part of his empire. And this Herod we're talking about in Acts chapter 12 is his grandson, Herod Agrippa I. He's the one that's mentioned in chapter 12 to arrest Peter. And so forth. Peter is let out of jail, remember, by those the angel, and so forth. And then we have the situation where we're told in the last part of the chapter that Herod goes up to Caesarea. He has a debate with the people from higher inside. and Sidon, you remember, about mm-hmm. grain shipments or something, some food shipments. Anyway, he ends up dying. You remember, he he takes uh, the he, people acclaim him to be God, and he takes this praise as though he is God he's struck down you remember and dies and the last thing is this summary statement in 1224 but the word of God continued to spread and flourish so we're ready to look at the Christian mission to the Gentile world 1225 through 2841 Um, we're looking at the first missionary journey it really kind of you know you could start at chapter 1225 uh it says, When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark, now in the church at Antioch. So we usually start maybe at 13.1, but I'm starting here at, say, 12.25. The NIV, I notice, starts the paragraph at 12.25 here. So we're starting with the fact that Barnabas and Saul, who had gone down to Jerusalem for that visit called the famine relief visit, come back now to Antioch. And now we have the uh, mission, the three missions that come from Paul's three missionary journeys that come out of the church at Antioch. So this is the Christian mission to the Gentile world. And we're talking about uh, Antioch here. And we're talking about the first first missionary journey here from Antioch. Uh, So it says, uh, now in the church of Antioch, verse 1, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So we're talking about the first missionary journey here. I say it's estimated to be about 900 miles in length, maybe from AD 46 to 48. Um, and the first thing we're looking at are the missionaries sent out, twelve twenty-five through thirteen three. Um, here is Antioch, uh, which we had, we talked about in the previous section. I realized probably should have said more about it. Antioch was a major city in the Roman Empire. Most people say it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, a very large population and a very large population of Jewish people there. Um, here's the northern end of the Levant looking south and we talked about this last time this, this area here along here is called the Levant um, this kind of this along the coastal plain here from Turkey all the way down into Egypt here is kind of called the Levant and uh, it, it extends over this way, remember we talked about that's where ISIL gets their name that group you know the um, the Islamic state Islamic state of Iran we call it ISIS Islamic Islamic state of of Iran and Syria that's ISIS ISIS remember um, the Islamic state the Islamic the Islamic state of Iraq and Syria but it's also called ISIL the Islamic the Islamic state of Iraq and the, the Levant, and that's their—that's the name they prefer. Probably the name we're translating Arabic words, so it's not perfectly clear. But so uh, this is the Levant here. So we're looking from the north here. We're looking north to south here. Just giving you an idea. This is this is what uh, Antioch looks like today. Now, as we've talked about before, in many of these places. There aren't any ancient ruins to see. Most of the places that we'll see where Paul went, we can see the ancient ruins. They're still there, but not here <clears throat> because the modern city is built on top of it and you can't really, they, you can't excavate. Uh, they don't really have a policy of uh, in Syria of, well, there, there are archaeologists that to do excavations, but it's not like Israel. Remember I told you about Israel the contractors hate to do business in Israel because if you do any kind of building in Israel and you turn up anything that looks like an ancient, you got ancient, anything, ancient, I don't care what it is, you've got to stop immediately and call the archaeologists in and they have to look at it and photograph and everything. It's just a hassle for people who want to build in Israel. But that's not true here. So there's, there's no, there, there, there was some archaeological done previously, uh, in the 20th century, but not really much to show here. This is Antioch from the south, so now we're looking back toward the mountains there. Here is Antioch, with the mountains from the north here, and here is the Orontes River. So it's called Antioch on the Orontes. We're going to see a couple of Antiochs in our in Paul's missionary journeys. We'll see Antioch of Pisidia. We'll see that shortly, or Antioch of Pisidia. This is called Antioch on the Orontes. Um, the people who ruled this area after Alexander the Great uh, were called the Seleucids. After Alexander the Great, in 300, this empire of Syria was ruled by the Seleucids, and their dynastic name was Antiochids. Or anti, so they named all these cities Antioch, just like we have. Washington this and Washington that and Jefferson this and you know whatever it is so they have, there's 16 Antiochs in the ancient world <clears throat> and so they, they sometimes distinguish them this is the biggest Antioch, the major one, Antioch on the Orontes so here we see uh, the missionary sent out uh, in 1225 through 13.3 so there's Paul and Barnabas. They had brought John, Mar- John also called Mark, back with them. And they had they mentioned these other teachers. Uh, and they are called prophets and teachers. Now, this is uh, this is the gift of prophecy. Those who have this 1 Corinthians 14 gift of prophecy, 12 through 14, the same gift we're talking about. As I say, this included both prediction of the future as well as exhortation based upon revelation from God. So we saw back in chapter 11, that section I read, in Antioch there was a prophet named Agabus who stood up and predicted there would be a severe famine throughout the entire Roman world. So the church at Antioch sent people, sent uh, relief to the church of Judea because of this prophecy. So in the early church there were these supernatural gifts, charismatic gifts or supernatural gifts uh, that are not available today. There are no prophets today. No one has the gift of prophecies. No one can predict the future. If they could, they would win all the lotteries, you know, and, and all that kind of thing, so forth. No, they can't. Uh, they can't really predict the future. That gift has ceased. Um, ceased with the completion of the canon. As I say, Paul certainly probably had this gift also himself. There's one I mentioned on page two called Simeon called Niger. <coughs> Simeon called Niger. Uh, this is a, a Latin term, Niger, meaning black or dark complexion. So there's, we, we don't know whether this has to do with his race ethnically or not, whether he was a black person or brown person, whether he was, you know, uh, it's, it's not clear um, because sometimes people have names that don't reflect their actually ethnicity. Uh, when I was growing up, people had names like, well before I was growing up, in my mother's time, they would tell me this. People had names like Blackie and Whitey. Did you ever hear of that? And boys have names like Whitey and Blackie and things like that. You know, Boston Blackie. See the, these people, these old people over there, they, they remember this kind of stuff. Boston okay, Blackie. Yeah, okay, it was, that was a good show. It was a good show, <laughs> <about> yeah. <you. laughs> so it could be that this fellow is ethnically as I mentioned sometimes he's been connected with Simon of Cyrene who carried Jesus' cross remember Luke 23-26 but Luke does not say that Simon is from Cyrene and spells his name differently from Simon of Cyrene so it's hard to know uh, because it says here this man is called uh, Simeon and so is he the Simon of Cyrene or something? That is, they they connected because if he's ethnically black, he might be from Africa. You know, if he's ethnically black, he might be from Africa, and the guy who carried Jesus' cross was Simon from Cyrene, and so forth. So there's conflicting evidence because I say on the one hand I say this fella is known as Simeon, but. Luke calls him Simon, but then I say, but Acts fifteen fourteen. Well, they're, they're Peter, you know, we talk about Simon Peter, but in 15, chapter 15, he's called Simeon. Simeon and Simon are just variations of the same name. So it's possible, you know, that's we're just speculating here. It's it's the, Some people say, but we don't know for sure. There's another fellow here called Mannion who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. And Herod the Tetrarch is this guy here. Um, <coughs> see, uh, if we see uh, Herod's sons here, he had a number of sons, but he had um, three sons who ruled. Herod Philip, Herod Antipas, uh, I'm sorry, Arch- Archelaus, I'm sorry, Herod Antipas and Herod Philip. I know it's a little, a little hard to see. Uh, but this is Herod Antipas. This is uh, this Herod that he's talking about. He had been brought up with Herod Antipas, one of Herod's sons who later did rule, who did, who did have uh, some rule uh, for a short period of time um, from, uh, from 4 B.C. to A.D. 39. Uh, Herod the Great sent his sons to Rome All of his children were sent to Rome to be raised in the Roman court. Remember, Herod got his kingdom, he got his rule from the Roman government. He was put in power in 40 by the Romans. And he acted like a Roman when he was in Rome. He built monuments to to the Caesars. He was very Roman and trying to be Jewish at the same time. So he sent his sons, and and so here's a fellow who was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Uh, So some very, you know, people who had uh, very kind of a noble background, birth, and so forth. Well, verse 2, it says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. This is probably a direct revelation from the prophets, I would assume, again. So the Holy Spirit said, and we have a quotation set apart. So here we probably have a prophetic utterance by one of these prophets again, like Agabus in chapter eleven, saying set apart Paul, Paul, Paul and Saul, excuse me, Barnabas and Saul. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. This placing on their hands, I say, is a symbolic idea of recognition, of identification. Uh, if you've ever been to an ordination service where someone has been ordained, we do this sort of the same thing. You place your hands on the person. You're just saying, we identify with you, we agree with you, we are with you. It's it's that kind of thing. It's a recognition of God's call upon you and so forth. Uh, We obviously take it from passages just like this. So Paul, I keep saying Paul, but he's not called Paul yet, he's called Saul yet here until we get later in the chapter, uh, Saul and Barnabas are sent out. So we see the mission here now on Cyprus and John Mark's departure, 13.4 through 13. So uh, it says that uh, the two of them were sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. They went down to Seleucia and sailed there to Cyprus. So Antioch is here, it's on the Orontes River that flows out to the Mediterranean. And the port that you would go to is Seleucia here. Here's the plain, the Seleucian plain. My cast is in the background. Now, what we'll see is most of these ancient ports are gone now. They, they, they. What happens is they get silted up for the most part. Uh, they're never, they, they, and there was no way to well, too much weight to keep it being silted up over hundreds of years. So they have been abandoned. Here's what's left of the Seleucia ancient harbor. You can kind of see it right here. But it's eroded away, gone away now. There's nothing um, particularly left of it here now. So they, they take this journey from Seleucia and they sail to Cyprus. I say that's about 60 miles away. They sail over to this city of Salamis here at Cyprus. Uh, This is the home of Barnabas, remember? Uh, we were told that early in the book of Acts. And as I say here, it became a senatorial province in 22 BC. Rome had two types of provinces. So I thought I'd mention this here because what we're going to see when we go through uh, Paul's journey here, we're going to see him going to various provinces And there's two major types of provinces that determine the government and what kind of officials Paul will come in contact with. There are senatorial senatorial provinces mainly and imperial provinces. Here's a map that kind of shows the various kinds of Roman government, Roman provinces. As I mentioned, the peaceful and civilized provinces like Cyprus, where no legions had to be stationed. About 10 in number are called senatorial provinces. So you can see these ones in purple. These are the senatorial provinces. You can see Cyprus here. So these were peaceful provinces. They're not generally out on the frontier. You can see out here on the frontier, you've got these imperial provinces, the ones in this pink, orange, or whatever color that is. Um, they're more on the frontier. Uh, that's where the Roman legions, a lot of legion soldiers would be stationed along the frontier here. So these were, uh, there are these senatorial provinces. <clears throat> they were administered by the Senate and ruled by proconsuls. Remember, uh, in the Roman government and, and before the time of the emperors, Rome had a republic. And they had the two most important officials were called consuls. They were elected and they served. There were two of them together, two consuls. And uh, the Senate also appointed governors to serve in provinces. They were pro for the consul, so they were working in a sense. They're like foreign ambassadors working for the president of the United States. So these peaceful provinces had these pro-consuls, and we'll see one here, Sergius Paulus, in uh, verse 7. They're appointed by the Senate. <clears throat> we'll see another man who's very important in chapter 18, a man named, named Gallio in the city of Corinth. He's very important to us because he's probably the guy who establishes the chronology in the book of Acts better than anybody else. Because uh, we know that Gallio, we know all about him, everything about it in his life, we know exactly when he became proconsul of Corinth in July of AD 51. <clears throat> so we know exactly the date that Paul was there. We know exactly, approximately, when Paul went before this fellow. So we we know a lot about the senatorial provinces, uh, and Cyprus is one. The restless, as I say, number two frontier provinces. That's these ones here, usually on the borders, on the. Borders of the Roman Empire Called imperial provinces Were under the direct control of the emperor Governed by imperial legates Of the senatorial class These legates Are representatives They're usually military generals Or ex-military generals When we took over from Saddam Hussein In, in, um, in Iraq The first guy we put in there Was an imperial legate We put in an ex-general Remember He was the first guy. He didn't do such a good job, but anyway. (laughs) At least people say that. I don't know, you know. But he was an ex general. So they put a general in there, but not a general, but an ex general, you know, who would know the military situation and so forth like that. So that's what they did in these imperial provinces. They were generally military men, had a legion at their disposal. Lesser provinces were under the control of a prefect or a procurator, Romans had two of what's called the equestrian rank. So, the Romans had various ranks in their uh, among the people uh, social status, social ranks. <clears throat> Every country except America <laughs> has always had social ranks. You know, England <laughs> is still true today. I remember years ago when I first came here, I met a guy who worked at Penny's, a salesman, and he, he came to America just because he wanted to escape this idea of the nobility and the, you know, there's this social status, you know, and so forth. There there wasn't any upward mobility. In most countries there's no upward mobility, like there is in America, you know, where a person can be be born very poor and become president of the United States. That's not possible. It's not been possible in most countries. And so uh, the rank under the senatorial class, those proconsuls were of the highest class, senatorial class. They were senators, ex senators Underneath them were called the equestrian class. And that was the next class. And so people were appointed to these sub-provinces like Judea here. Now, uh, see, this is really an a imperial province, but there's kind of a sub-province here, Judea, where people like Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was a, was a man of the equestrian order. And so they had these imperial provinces, but they had them broken up sometimes into these sub-provinces governed by a prefect. Pontius Pilate was a prefect. Uh, I say after Archelaus was banished by 86, Judea and Samaria became an imperial province administered by prefects like Pontius Pilate under the legate of Syria. In addition, there were client kingdoms, ethnic districts that were permitted to remain semi-independent under their own rulers like Herod the Great. So we'll run into all of these kind of places here. Here you see a little area besides Cilicia. Lysia Pamphylia that is really a client kingdom. So the Romans sometimes would come in and if they had a kingdom that was agreeable with them or helped them battle other kingdoms, they would allow that king to stay in power. So you had senatorial provinces, imperial provinces and these client kingdoms. Herod the Great, when he ruled over this this was really sort of a client kingdom that he had under the emperor. So uh, We have that uh, they arrive at Salamis, verse 5. They come to uh, Cyprus and they went down to Seleucia. They arrive at Salamis where they proclaim the word of God in the Jewish synagogue. John was with them as their helper. As I mentioned here, Salamis is the most important city here. It's the port city. It's the major port city in the Mediterranean, one of the major ports is the Mediterranean. Ships from Egypt would often stop here, come up here and stop. It was a very major port. There's the Salamis coast from the south. So this is the ancient harbor here. There's nothing, again, that's where it was at, but it's silted up for the most part. Here's a the theater in Salamis. Most of these cities will see if they're of any size, they'll have some sort of theater theater like this. Ephesus has one that, sets, that seats 25,000 people, but nothing like this. We, I think we saw one, we, I showed you the slide, of the one at Caesarea. Here's a gymnasium, theater and gymnasium. Well, I'm glad our church doesn't have seats like that. <laughs> 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 That's hard to take, isn't it? So, like any good Roman city, they would have a bathhouse, they have streets. Uh, So, they come to uh, Salamis and they come to the synagogue, it says. Uh, They preached in the synagogues. This is Paul's normal uh, way of approaching things. Verse 6, well, I say here, uh, more than one synagogue indicates a large Jewish population. So this says synagogue, so we appear to be a, a, a large Jewish population. As we said, Paul, this is his practice to go from to go initially into a town, try to find if there's a synagogue because he would find people there who were acquainted with the scriptures and so forth. And Paul also had this mission, you remember, this kind of personal mission of to the Jew first. He wanted to take the gospel to his own people and give them an opportunity first to see if they would receive the gospel. But he liked to go to the synagogue because he would find people who knew the scripture, he'd find God-fearers, Gentiles there and so forth, and so he would go into the synagogues. Well, they traveled across the whole island here, we're told, verse 6, until they came to Paphos. Uh, This is about 90 miles from Salamis across the island there. Um, to Paphos. Um, here's Paphos. Here's the modern harbor today. They're going to they're sail from Paphos up into Turkey. But here's the ancient harbor. And again, the ancient harbor is not where the modern harbor is. So these ancient harbors are mostly destroyed. Here's the forum, what's left. Every Roman city... Even Greek cities, Greek cities had an agora, they called it, the marketplace, Romans called it the forum. So every one of these cities usually has a forum that's often sort of a triangular setup like that, a town square, we would think of it today. And we'll see, we'll see a lot of these. Some of them are in pretty good shape. Uh, this one is not, obviously, but there's some beautiful things there at Paphos, some mosaics that are still there to be seen uh, so they come to pay and there they met verse 6 a Jewish sorcerer a false prophet named bar Jesus and as I say this word bar is Aramaic for son and so this is son of Jesus or son of Joshua remember the Greek word Jesus is the equivalent of the Hebrew word Joshua So this is the son of Jesus, the son of Joshua. It's not a reference to Jesus Christ. We shouldn't think of this as uh, he's claiming to be the son of Jesus. These people don't know anything about Jesus. They never heard Paul's going to tell them about Jesus here. They don't know that. This guy's claiming to be just the son of Jesus, son of Joshua, and something like that. He's just a a sorcerer, he's called here. Uh, He was an attendant of the proconsul. Sergius Paulus. So here we're in that senatorial province. We know the man's name, Sergius Paulus. At least we know two of his Roman names. Uh, and the consul is an, intellig- uh, an intelligent man sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elamus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means. So I say that's probably a Semitic <laughs> word meaning sorcerer, magician, as Luke tells us here. Oppose them and try to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Paul, who is also called, then Saul, who is also called Paul. Uh, As I say here, Paul did not change his name at this point. Remember, I've talked about this previously. We talked about the conversion of Paul. It's sometimes thought that, well, okay, Paul changed his name here for some reason. No, Paul did not change his name. And the reason we know that is because Paul claims to be a Roman citizen. And as a Roman citizen, he would have had a Roman name, and Paul, Paulus, is a Roman name. As I say, as a Hellenistic Jew and Roman citizen, he had both a Jewish name, Saul, and a Roman name from birth. So he had to have that name, Paul, from birth to be a Roman citizen. In Gentile areas, he used his Roman name. And that's probably what's going on here. Most think that... Now Paul is in Gentile area. We're strictly among pagan Gentiles and Luke's going to refer to him now as Paul from now on in the book. Though Saul is perfectly fine also. <coughs> Remember we talked about this before. Roman citizens had three names. A praenomen, and a nomen, and a cognomen. Remember this is, the, this is the last name or this is the surname. So, uh, so this would be the family name here. Now, I mentioned famous people here, uh, like, uh, uh, well, I mentioned, don't have them here, but I mentioned some. Uh, I mentioned Virgil, Publius Virgilius Maro. I do have Cicero here, Marcus Tullius Cicero. So we think of him as Caesar. We think of Julius Caesar. Remember, I remember we said last semester that we think of Julius as his first name and Caesar as his last name, but Julius is really his family name. So this would be like Combsville. Bill. So that's the family name. And Paulus is his cognomen, or like his first name. So we don't know Paul's family name. It would be nice to know, remember I said. If we knew that, we might be able to look up, we have a lot of Roman records, we could know something about that family. But we don't know what his nomen is, We just know his sort of first name, Pallas, here. And that's all we know. So uh, most people believe, as I say, that's his his cognomen. And he also had the Hebrew name, Saul, which basically means the same thing, just a Hebrew version of that. And so this is common among Jewish people. Jewish people would give their children both a Gentile Roman name, and a Jewish name. Certainly they would have a Jewish name, but so they could fit into the culture, so they could fit into the culture, they would give them a Roman name also. And I mentioned a couple examples here. As we just saw, John also called Mark. So technically, you know, you're not supposed to say John Mark. I have a a, uh, brother-in-law Whose, whose name is John Mark Fulton. You know, his mother gave him the name John Mark Fulton. You know. But technically, we're not supposed to say John Mark. That'd be like saying Saul Paul. I say that technically, but even I do it myself you know, I say because we're so used to saying John Mark. But John is his Hebrew name, and Mark or Marcus is his Roman name. So the Bible never says John Mark, it says John, also called Mark, in chapter 11, verse 12, verse 25. So we have that. We have Simeon called Niger. Remember, we had Simeon. That was his Hebrew name. Niger was his Roman name. Jesus, that's his Hebrew name in Greek, called Justice, Colossians 4.11. So we have a lot of this. and So this is Saul, who is also called Paul here Saul who is also called Paul Saul who is also called Paul verse 9 filled with the Holy Spirit looked straight at Elimus and said now I mentioned here the filling of the Holy Spirit again we talked about this back in Acts chapter 2 and I suggested that in the book of Acts you have two fillings of the Holy Spirit you have what's called a special filling here and that's I cited some verses here we are some examples of that and I say here that's a special act of divine enablement generally related to a verbal proclamation like we see here Saul is filled with the Holy Spirit and he has this verbal proclamation you are a child of the devil an enemy of everything that is right you are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery you will never stop perverting the ways of the Lord now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. So I say it's a it's a divine enablement tied to verbal proclamation. A special filling is not the result of prayerful seeking. In fact, no conditions have to be met to obtain it since each one is sovereignly given. This special filling is similar in the New Testament to the coming of the Holy Spirit on Old Testament saints to accomplish a divinely given task. So this is God sovereignly giving a special enablement by the Holy Spirit to someone generally for some prophetic ministry for some verbal proclamation here. Now we'll see a reference later to what we call that ordinary filling is what we would experience today. So immediately when Paul announces this we're told in verse 11 mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. As I mentioned here, this was a quite a turning point when it says the proconsul believed. When he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. <clears throat> it was a, as I say, a turning point in Paul's whole ministry and inaugurated. A new policy in the mission of the Gentiles. Gentiles would now be brought to conversion without any prior exposure or commitment to Judaism. That is, these Gentiles did not need to become Jews before accepting the Jewish Messiah. So, remember, we talked about this. Uh, We've had Gentiles converted in the past, we've had Cornelius primarily, the big example. So, he's a Gentile, he's been saved. But he's not like this guy. This guy is a strictly a pagan. He doesn't know Old Testament from the Quran, you know, as far as, not that there was a Quran in, but he doesn't know one book from another. So he's just a totally pagan person, just like many of us uh, were. You know, we didn't know anything, maybe when we were saved, possibly. So uh, this is new, and this is, going to be troubling. Remember, this is going to bring up Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council. Is that really true? Can people be right with God apart from some connection to Judaism? Is that really true? That's a a monumental change in the plan of God it seems like. If people can be saved apart from Judaism, then what good is the temple in Jerusalem? What good is all these Jewish practices? You know, well, this, is, this is really an, an unbelievable thing. And that's going to get Paul and Barnabas in trouble when they go back at the end of this missionary journey, as we'll see in Acts 15. So we're seeing here that they, they did not to become Jews. Two, Gentile Christians who put their faith in Jesus were not expected to adopt a Jewish lifestyle or any distinctive Jewish practices. Now we can see that Luke understands this because at the end of this missionary journey, which is chapter fourteen. If you look at chapter fourteen and verse twenty seven, when they come back to the church at Antioch, Paul and Barnabas come back, it says, On arriving there, back at Antioch, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Well, hadn't Cornelius been saved? Yes, he had, it's true, but this is a little different door here. This is a door to just pagan Gentiles who have no contact with Judaism. So you can just go out and tell a person about Jesus Christ and he can be saved. That, that's unusual because before, everybody's been somehow connected to Judaism. They accepted the Jewish ideals and, and so forth. So this is a new thing. And as I say, when I cite 15.3 there, it's going to bring up an issue later when we get to the Jerusalem Council. Um. So, this is this is a this is a tremendous thing that's happened here. Paul has brought the gospel to just Gentile lands, and Gentiles are saved who don't go to the synagogue. Don't we don't have any connection here with the synagogue or anything like that at all. Um, verse thirteen. Um, from Paphos. Um, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga. So they leave Paphos here, and they go north. Um, I say here about 112 miles north of Paphos. Um, and they uh, come to this Roman province of Pamphylia here. Now this is modern-day Turkey. You know, we're looking at the map here. This is modern-day Turkey. So we're talking about southern Turkey here. And so here's the province of Pamphylia. Here's Cilicia over here, where Paul was from, Tarsus here. Here's that client kingdom right here, maybe. And so they sail north, and they're going strictly into Gentile territory here in Pamphylia. Uh, they come to Perga in Pamphylia. As I say, Perga was the capital of the Roman province of Pamphylia. Right here. You can see the, see the, the line there. Um, here is uh, Perga. There are some remains here. These are gates. This could have been from Paul's period. When they say Hellenistic gates, remember Hellenistic is the word for Greek. So the Hellenistic period runs from say 300 BC to about 300 AD. So it's this, these gates are from around Paul's time. Now here you can see these gates, these uh, large gates. You can see them from the back here. So this was quite an imposing you know, structure coming into the city. So what we see in these remains now are just the foundation stones. We just have to kind of imagine what's what's there uh, here's the agora the forum sort of a rectangular kind of marketplace there would have been shops and so forth all along here here's uh, some columns but these are later we assume the agora would have had col- most of these agoras had columns and these columns we know are, are from time later but we assume that it would have been a rectangular thing with columns all around we'll see the same thing in Philippi We'll see these columns at a number of places like this. Here's a stadium at uh, Perga. (laughs) Um, So we're told that in verse uh, 13, they sailed from Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. So they go from Paphos to Perga, and then it says John left them. I mentioned here various suggestions have been given as to why he went back to Jerusalem. Why did John leave? Some say homesickness. Some say the rigors of travel. You can can imagine all kinds of reasons here. Here's one. Dissatisfaction with Paul's assuming leadership over his cousin Barnabas. Uh... Some people say compare Barnabas and Saul in verse 7 with Paul as companions in verse 13. That is, they say it looks like, you know, Barnabas was maybe the leader here at first and then Paul is sort of taking over. He's the chief spokesman. He's clear to that in, in chapter 14. Some say maybe he got upset with that. Some say he got upset. This is one that always appeals to me. Disagreement with the policy of direct evangelization of Gentiles. Maybe he got upset about that. Maybe he sees, look where Paul is taking us here. We usually go to the synagogues and try to reach those Jewish people and those god and synagogues. But Paul is just taking this message to these pagans out here. I mean, what can that really be done? Is that really right? Uh, so you can imagine all kinds of things. Some commentators say, John went back to Jerusalem and stirred up trouble for the Apostle Paul, even possibly. Uh, Because later we're going to see in chapter 15, there is trouble, big trouble for the apostle and Barnabas and so forth as they come back, that he stirred up these Judaizers, we call them, uh, people who said, you've got to keep the law and be circumcised. Now, obviously, whatever he did was pretty upsetting to the apostle Paul, because later when they go out for their second missionary journey, you remember in Acts chapter 15, verse 37 Barnabas wanted to take John also called Mark with them but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company and so forth so uh, Paul just didn't think he was up to it he deserted them we just, we're just not told the reason why here but he and Barnabas can't agree about this and so they part ways on that so we, we only left to speculate here why um, John would have left. Um, it says then, verse 14, from Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. So they travel next up here to another place called Antioch. Antioch in Pisidia. Now, if you look at the map here and you see these blue lines, this is the province of Galatia that we've entered into now. They left the province of Pamphylia; They've come to the province of Galatia. Now, it's called Pisidia because this is an ethnic region. This is the name for an ethnic region. Pisidian region. This is an old geographical and ethnic name. These people are called Pisidians ethnically and it's, it's called Pisidia. But the Romans have created a province the Romans took this southern area and this northern area and they put it together in a province called Galatia. And this is, this is where Paul is writing the letter to the Galatians. When Paul is writing to the Galatians, he's writing to people in this province. And he's actually going to be writing to the people in Antioch and Pisidia, Iconium, Derbe, and Lystra. He's writing to those churches here in this particular province of Galatia. But Paul has entered Galatia now for the first time Here. And after this first missionary journey he gets back in acts chapter 14 he writes a letter back to these galatians the first letter that paul writes in the canon is the book of galatians he writes that in AD 49 right after this missionary journey and he writes back to these people because paul is taking the gospel to these gentiles saying just accept Christ trust him trust his death and you'll be saved and these people are coming behind Paul saying no Paul has given you the false message you must also keep the law and be circumcised you know so they're not they're not happy with Paul's message of direct evangelization of the Gentiles but say 15 so we'll take that up next time all right we'll see you then.